Half of Fox News viewers believe that climate change is not caused by humans. The campaign against global warming seems to have gone bust. It started as an effort to protect the environment. It is not that anymore. A 2014 study found that 72% of references to climate change on Fox News in 2013 were misleading. Viewers were 31% more likely to agree with the statement that it's not clear that Obama was born in the United States. It's not a birth certificate, Candy, and people are trying to figure out why isn't he giving his birth certificate. It's not a birth certificate. 60% believe that American Muslims are not an important part of the U.S. religious community. There's a lot of trash talking going on between President Obama and presumptive presidential nominee Donald Trump over Muslims and what they do or don't believe. And 68% believe that the values of Islam are at odds with American values. Fox News, the most popular news channel in America, with imitators popping up across the globe, has indisputably changed the news media landscape. Some have even argued it's now part of the Republican Party machinery. Others say it's the other way around. Former Bush speechwriter David Froome said that Republicans originally thought that Fox worked for us, and now we're discovering we work for Fox. To understand the Fox News phenomenon, how it influences the international, let alone the national conversation, where it came from, what it gets wrong, and what it gets right, we need to situate the rise of Murdoch's news empire in its wider context. The rise of television as a medium, what that meant for how information is presented to us and how that changed how we approach politics. Because Fox News is not just about Fox News, it's about how we've all changed, how in Marshall McLuhan's tired but timeless words, the medium that we communicate in, whether book, newspaper, radio, television or the internet, is the message. Television created new ways to shape how the world is presented. So we'll see how many who are critical of Fox need to acknowledge that they do get a lot right. And that we can situate Fox in a larger historical arc, one that reaches right back to the Enlightenment, to Romanticism, through to today, to this idea that for good, or for bad, Fox might be the best example we have of a postmodern news channel. Of course, the O'Reillys and the Hannitys and the Carlsons of the world and uh, this guy have always been around, but it takes a particular historical, philosophical, political and regulatory shape for them to fit through the tropes, the motifs and the elements that they employ in their delivery to be accepted and aired in the first place.
seeing as our sight, our eyes, are the most important and the most sensitive of our senses, it's no wonder that there would be something inherently attractive to us about television. Invented in 1927, by 1946 there were around 2,000 sets in the US. By 1952, just six years later, there were 15.3 million. But television, like radio before it, was heavily regulated from the beginning. With limited space on the airwaves for stations, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, granted licenses, insisted a variety of political viewpoints were represented, and mandated that stations had to provide at least some programme that was in the, quote, public interest, news, education and documentary. News, at first, was simple. CBS and NBC, both radio networks, broadcast short newsreels with basic footage, often staged and, if of the war, supplied by the US government. CBS News presents Douglas Edwards with up-to-the-minute developments from all parts of the world. Mr. Edwards. Good evening, everybody. Concise voiceovers supplied viewers with the basic facts. In these early years, news was the prerogative of the press, of journalists, and any news on radio and television would sound much like a short newspaper article, where the facts were usually ripped from. The first popular news programme to film its own stories was NBC's 1949 Camel-sponsored News Caravan, presented by John Cameron Swayze, who would smoke camels on screen. Of Camel Cigarettes bring the world's latest news events right into your own living room. Sit back, light up a camel, and be an eyewitness to the happenings that made history in the last 24 hours. In the 50s, broadcasters began to experiment with new styles more appropriate to the small screen. Journalist Don Hewitt joined CBS in 1948 and led an experimentation with graphics, with maps, charts, and introduced a revolutionary new device, the teleprompter. Hewitt was creative, trying things like using toy soldiers to illustrate the Korean War. He also innovated a style of mixing talking heads with narration over the top of footage, and then back to talking heads again, which quickly became standard across the networks. In New York, knowing the visual appeal of television, WPIX began racing around the city to film stories of fires or plane crashes. And while most news coverage was still simple, relying on the supposedly neutral and objective presentation of unbiased facts that readers of newspapers were largely used to, these rare innovations would become harbingers of things to come. The first innovative modern documentary-style programme was journalist Ed Murrow's 1951 See It Now. It used unscripted interviews, lots of specially filmed footage, and began to expand on the topics it covered. The Korean War, a story on the Grand Coulee Dam, coverage of events like Queen Elizabeth's coronation, and an expose of Senator Joseph McCarthy. But while covering sensitive issues, 
See It Now quickly attracted controversy. The FCC's 1949 Fairness Doctrine permitted opinion and editorialising, but also required, quote, a reasonably balanced presentation of the issues. After Murrow had criticised McCarthy and continued focusing on sensitive topics, CBS cancelled See It Now in 1948, with Chairman William Paley telling Murrow that he didn't want a stomachache every time the show aired. Murrow, quickly becoming a national celebrity, became an influential critic of what television was becoming, bemoaning that it was, quote, decadence, escapism, and insulation from the realities of the world in which we live. Television could be a force for good, he insisted, but instead, networks produced shows that appealed to the lowest common denominator to appease advertisers and attract the largest possible audience. Murrow was one of many critical of the so-called culture industry in the post-war period, FCC Chairman Newton Minow gave a famous speech to the National Association of Broadcasters in 1962, saying that television had become a sensationalist, vast wasteland, with screaming, cajoling and offending commercials. Adding to this critique, in 1958, it had been discovered that several quiz shows had been fixed to keep popular contestants on and the ratings high. Scandals like this, and the criticism that television was becoming Minnow's vast wasteland, were becoming part of the national conversation, and Kennedy promised to strengthen the FCC's powers during his 1960 campaign. In response, and in an effort of self-protection, television executives took note and increased their news, education and public affairs budgets. Meanwhile, they searched for ways to make the public interest programmes that they were forced to make and broadcast more popular, more appealing to the average viewer. In 1951, NBC's Pat Weaver imagined a morning show that would, quote, tell early risers all kinds of things they should know as they faced the day. It should feel like a magazine, should cover a variety of popular human topics, feature different guests, and importantly cover the women's domain, fashion, children, domestic issues, and be presented by women. Today launched in 1952 to bad reviews, but quickly became the most profitable show on TV. Other networks soon followed suit. Executives were discovering something about television. Human interest. Everyday issues that focused on people, story, and emotion was popular more than anything else. Revan Frank at NBC distributed a memo that argued that journalism on television was about narrative and that, quote, every news story, without sacrifice of probity or responsibility, display attributes of fiction. It should have structure and conflict, problem and denouement, rising action and falling action, a beginning, a middle and an end. Fox News, 
when it was launched on October the 7th, 1996, was the brainchild of one man, Roger Isles. Born in 1940 and graduated from Ohio University in 1962 with a major in radio and television, the loud, bombastic, opinionated and controversial Roger Isles may have been responsible for more politicians and presidents being elected than any man in history. In the early 60s, his first job was on a local talk show, The Mike Douglas Show. The show became a phenomenon, went national, and Douglas became the highest paid star on television. The Mike Douglas Show was where Ailes began honing his craft, learning that television was about drama, spontaneity, and appearances. Producer of the show, Woody Fraser, told Ailes that the most important ingredient for a daily show was to keep it fresh, and one way was to keep people off balance, not knowing what would happen, sitting on the edge of their seats. It's when people get bored that they switch channels. Another producer later said that Roger was just completely interested and intrigued by the mechanics of the ways these guys presented themselves and talked. During his 1968 presidential campaign, while appearing as a guest on The Mike Douglas Show, Nixon told Ailes, it's a shame a man has to use gimmicks like this to get elected. Television is not a gimmick, Ailes responded, and if you think it is, you'll lose again. Nixon had come off poorly on the very first televised debates between him and Kennedy, and Ailes's confidence and inside knowledge about a new medium impressed Nixon and his aides. The Nixon team hired Ailes, and the work they did would soon change political campaigning forever. Ailes knew from his work on The Mike Douglas Show that television was about something contradictory, artificial authenticity. You had to construct the appearance of spontaneity. As all of his contemporaries were to become aware as they read McLuhan's influential new book, the medium was the message. At the time, Ailes made a prescient observation. He said, Nixon is not a child of TV, and he may be the last candidate who couldn't make it on the Johnny Carson show and could make it in an election. Politics, he was discovering, was now about television. The two were becoming intertwined. This is it, he said. This is the way they'll be elected forevermore. The next guys up will have to be performers. Ailes organised TV spots for the campaign that had supposedly ordinary voters asking Nixon questions in town hall-style meetings. To the viewer, the encounters appeared natural, but the questions were staged and the answers pre-prepared. Ailes knew that because television was mostly local, Nixon could reuse pre-prepared stock phrases over and over in different locations without the risk of being found out or it looking phony. In the book he later wrote, You Are the Message, he wrote, On an index card you can keep in your wallet, 
List the key phrases of 10 stories that will entertain audiences for the next 10 years. He knew that more than just the authentic individual, the television medium was about presentation, style, emotion, camera work, the set. Style. Ailes more or less invented the idea of the soundbite. He wrote, television is a hit and run medium. The general public is just not sophisticated enough to wade through answers. Therefore, at least some of Mr. Nixon's answers should end with a specific graphic, a succinct, memorable comment. He said Nixon should use descriptive, visual phrases. Emotion. He knew television was about moments, usually dramatic, spontaneous and unpredictable moments, even if you had to plan the spontaneous moments. He collaborated on the Nixon campaign with speechwriter and Nixon aide Raymond Price, who introduced him to the idea that politics is similar to TV. He said, politics is much more emotional than it is rational, and this is particularly true of presidential politics. Camera work. Ailes was impressed with Lenny Riefenstahl's groundbreaking Nazi propaganda piece, The Triumph of the Will, as many in film and television were at the time. The film was full of shots and camera angles and set pieces and dialogue, all focused on curating the image of the Fuhrer. Mike Douglas producer Kenny Johnson recalled that he and Isles would talk about the psychological power of camera placement. He said, there's so many subtle things you see in propaganda. If you put the camera below the subject's eye height, it's the hero shot. It gives him dominance, for example. The set. When on set with Nixon in Chicago, Ailes complained that those stupid bastards on the set designing crew put turquoise curtains in the background. He had them removed and replaced with wooden panels that had, quote, clean, solid, masculine lines. He wanted the subliminal feeling of Nixon being the hero at battle in an arena. He wrote, even if a viewer is not in favour of Richard Nixon, by 15 minutes into the programme, he almost subconsciously begins to root for him. And Nixon tended to sweat a lot, so they had the air conditioning turned right up to counter the studio lighting and made sure that they used the right makeup. After the Nixon campaign, Ailes was featured in Joe McGuinness's best-selling The Selling of the President, which told the story of the taping of the television ads that he had worked on. One memo from the book read, Reason requires a high degree of discipline, of concentration. Impression is easier. Reason pushes the viewer back. Impression can envelope him, invite him in. It revealed that Ailes was obsessed with details like the colour of makeup on Nixon's eyelids, the demographic of the audience in shot, the presence or the absence of something like a frown. Within the Republican Party, Ailes quickly became a superstar. With his reputation growing, he began his own consulting business. Republicans clamoured over him, hoping that they too could be the next Nixon. But Nixon had been teaching Ailes something too. Something that changed the dynamic of American politics. Ailes later remembered that, I never had a political thought until they asked me to join the Richard Nixon presidential campaign. 
The Nixon campaign had run on now familiar populist logic. It was that that there were a group of liberal establishment politicians, media moguls, businessmen, executive producers, journalists and anchormen, a cabal of elitist snobs that was out of touch, unaligned with the views of the silent majority of honest, hard-working, decent Americans. The elites were politically correct, eastern coast liberals who liked to tell the dim-witted how to live, what to do and what to think. And television had already become a powerful part of that establishment elite. By the 70s, the television networks had become a powerful force in American life. They saw themselves, like journalists and philosophers and authors before them, as being a rational avant-garde, leading the nation into the future. They were already being seen as elitist and arrogant. They were already beginning to be met with suspicion. In his history of television news, historian Charles Ponce de Leon writes, they were losing in part because they were seeking to inform through a medium that was poorly suited for rational discourse and the sober, objective analysis of complex issues and events. Ailes turned away from politics for a period. He worked on different television shows and even on Broadway, putting on two shows that were met with a lukewarm reception. But he kept his consulting work and his spell in theatre, his experience and experimentation with different styles on TV, and his exposure to the most powerful politicians in the country would soon begin to synthesise into a potent, latent, bubbling force. In 1974, beer business mogul Joseph Coors approached Ailes with a proposition, a conservative news network, TVN. Coors' dream was the first attempt at what Fox would later become. Like Nixon, he believed that the left dominated the media and the wider political establishment. He said, all three networks slant the news with innuendos, accents, the sneers they make. He later said that we got into it because of our strong belief that the network news is slanted to the liberal left side of the spectrum and does not give an objective view to the American public. Former Nixon aide Bruce Hershenson wrote a memo to TVN staff explaining how television could be used to promote conservative viewpoints. It became a model for later imitators. The memo included the concept of pretense balancing, quote, showing all sides of a particular story when in fact the balance is tilted, and the hold frame, holding the camera in a flattering or unflattering position depending on what you wanted to convey. He also encouraged using commentator speculation, which would appear to be factual, but are actually editorialised, and catchphrases and sex appeal to sell the message, and the simple repetition of stories and opinions. He called repetition the oldest and the most effective propaganda technique. 
TVN's tagline was the independent news service. Not right-wing, they'd argue, just a balance to the liberal elite's bias in the rest of the media. Journalist Stanhope Gold wrote a story about TVN in 1975 entitled Cause Brews the News, which criticised the network and called Ailes, quote, the only man in history to run a national news organisation while owning an entertainment industry consulting firm. The article damaged TVN's reputation from the start, and the network only ran for two years. But while it struggled, TVN did lay the groundwork for what was soon to come. After TVN collapsed, Ailes continued expanding his consultancy business, and by the 1980s, he was one of the most successful political consultants in America, and probably in history, helping 13 Republican senators and eight congressmen to win office. And in that time, he continued to hone his attack ad method. In one advert for Republican Mitch McConnell, Ailes attacked McConnell's Kentucky opponent, Walter Huddleston, for being absent from key votes while away giving paid speeches. Ailes said to the team, This is Kentucky. I see hang dogs on the scent looking for the lost member of Congress. The ad featured a dog trainer and bloodhounds and a voiceover that said, My job was to find D. Huddleston and get him back to work. Huddleston was skipping votes but making an extra $50,000 giving speeches. Let's go, boys. The ad concluded with the tagline, Switch to Mitch for Senator. The truth was that Huddleston had been present for 94% of votes, but it didn't matter. Ailes successfully painted him as lazy and greedy, McConnell won, and as McConnell's campaign manager recalled, the ad, quote, taught every Republican campaign school about how to use humour as a deadly weapon. In 84, Ailes was recruited by Reagan, and in 88, he took on George Bush, who, like Nixon, didn't perform well on television. Ailes suggested Bush play the Gary Cooper character, stoic, a slower speaking deep voice. He advised him how to dress, once telling him, don't ever wear that shirt again, you look like a f***ing clerk. One Bush campaign ad quickly became the most controversial yet. As governor, Bush's opponent, Michael Dukakis, had signed a pass that allowed a convicted murderer out of prison for a weekend, while on release. Willie Horton raped a woman and stabbed her boyfriend. The story became a focus of Bush's campaign. Dukakis is soft on criminals, soft on crime, soft on the death penalty, they said. The ad caused an outcry that Bush's team were stoking racial tensions, and although he denied it, critics said the ad was textbook Ailes. Ailes had allegedly told a reporter, the only question is whether we depict Willie Horton with a knife in his hand or without it. Bush was also aggravated. He told Ailes, I want to get back to the issues and quit talking about him. And Ailes responded that they planned to do so the day after the election. Bush won by a large majority. How much the ad contributed to the win, who knows? But as Gabriel Sherman writes, 
It was validation that Ailes' brand of divisive politics could win national majorities. Ailes went on to work with politicians and media figures like Rudy Giuliani and Rush Limbaugh. Throughout his consultancy years, he became more convinced that more than anything, politics was war. Analog television limited the number of channels that could be broadcast in any area. This limitation of the technology that was inherent in the medium had made the FCC's regulation tolerable, even to those usually opposed to government interference, especially on matters of free speech. There were two pillars of the FCC regulation. The 1934 mandate that some of the programme's networks aired had to be in the, quote, public interest, and the fairness doctrine that broadcasters had to give time to opposing political viewpoints. However, in the 70s, cable and satellite began to make the limitations of analogue obsolete. The range of channels available began to increase. In 1981, Ronald Reagan repealed the FCC's public interest requirement and abolished the Fairness Doctrine. A new breed of media quickly developed, talk radio, shows like Rush Limbaugh's, broadcasting partisan politics, opinionated, unapologetic and revolutionary. As the cable years developed, more and more varied channels started popping up. Niche channels like Nickelodeon for kids and ESPN for sports launched in 1979, and the following year media mogul Ted Turner started CNN, the first channel to broadcast news 24-7. We now take 24-hour news for granted, but CNN has been credited with several innovations. A revolving wheel of news, a loop of stories, weather, financial news, and it was the first national news operation which, with a huge investment in reporters, offices and equipment, could go live at the scene whenever possible. Something normal news programmes limited to their pre-scheduled slots just couldn't do. CNN was a success. It made 12.5 million in 1985, 13.5 million in 86, and 60 million in 87. There was clearly a taste for news on demand. It slowly built up offices around the world so it could report on global issues as quickly as possible and became the go-to for global news events like Tiananmen Square in China or the Fall of the Berlin Wall, which CNN broadcast from live. It was the only station on air when the Space Shuttle Challenger exploded in the air in 1986. Rupert Murdoch, already overseeing a global news media empire that included the New York Post, The Sun in the UK and 20th Century Fox, was taking note. In 86, 20th Century Fox launched A Current Affair. Influenced by Entertainment Tonight and Murdoch's tabloid journalism, 
It focused on crime, gossip, scandal and celebrity, anything that could grab a viewer's attention. At the same time, Roger Ailes had been invited to launch a short-lived show on NBC, America's Talking. The goal of the show was to make factual programming more entertaining. Business and stock market news should be approached like sports channels presenting sports. It's America's Talking, the first all-talk network dedicated to what America is talking about. The first ever daily national conversation. The excitement begins July 4th when we go online with the country's best talk. Ailes wanted, quote, closer shots, more emotion, bolder sound, voiceovers announcing breaks instead of just music. America's Talking featured chat shows and phone-in programs like Bugged in which viewers could talk about the things that were bothering them that day. But like TVN before it, America's Talking struggled and Ailes, who many at NBC were already suspicious and critical of, was pushed out. In the mid-90s, as MSNBC and ABC looked to follow in CNN's footsteps and launch 24-hour news channels, Murdoch wanted in, and he knew that Ailes was the man for the job. Both men had a visceral disdain for channels like MSNBC, which, when it launched in 96, wanted to portray itself in the image of a trendy, urban, downtown coffee bar where, like shows like Friends and Seinfeld, co-hosts could sit around drinking coffee, casually and amiably discussing the news and events. To Murdoch and Ailes, this elitist, sneering, metropolitan image concealed the liberal slant that turned its nose up at the real retro-rural American, and worse, told them what to believe and who to vote for. With the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, though, they thought, it was time this changed. When he'd repealed the Fairness Doctrine, Reagan's FCC appointment, Mark Fowler, had famously argued that the public interest was what interested the public. No longer would regulators and establishment executives and politicians decide what counted as news. The market would decide. De Leon writes that in previous decades, most well-educated Americans, including many of the corporate elite, would have rejected market populism as a cynical and potentially dangerous excuse to exploit the public's poor taste and most primitive yearnings. In this view, merely satisfying consumer demand without considering what you were selling was unseemly and amoral. But by the 90s, more and more Americans were criticising the establishment as being out of touch with ordinary American life. While at the same time, instead of cultural uplift, networks increasingly relied on chasing ratings and high viewing figures. More drama, cop shows, celebrity and scandal. News anchor Dan Rather said in a speech They've got us putting more and more fuzz and was on the air, cop show stuff, so as to compete not with other news programmes but with entertainment programmes, including those posing as news programmes. 
CNN's commitment to pure news began to suffer in this increasingly sensationalist environment, but an event that would change the face of television forever was just around the corner. In 1994, CNN decided to run back-to-back -back coverage of a trial, O.J. Simpson's. It became a national phenomenon and led to a 500% increase in CNN's viewership. It was clear that what people wanted was emotion, drama, everyday lives under the microscope. Dateline, for example, launched in 1992 focused on profiling celebrities or talking about worry-inducing medical stories that might affect you and your life. It seemed like traditional news, textual, prosaic, the recounting of facts, was being challenged by something else. And it was that something else that Murdoch already knew a lot about. Rupert Murdoch, 65 years old, was already overseeing a global media empire with revenues of $9 billion. He had owned over 24 newspapers, 100 magazines, a book publishing company, 20th Century Fox Film Studios, Sky TV in the UK, Vox in Germany, The New York Post, and he aimed to launch Fox News in 1996. By this point, Ailes had worked for and engineered the elections of several presidents and numerous politicians, ran a succession of programmes and stations, news and entertainment, and had put on shows on Broadway. He loved show business. Murdoch knew that Ailes was the man for the job. Internal memos revealed that Fox should counter CNN's stale format that was, quote, breaking news driven, processed event coverage, big story dependent, reactive and slow and predictable. Fox instead should emphasise personality and programming, produced information, appointment TV, news plus human interaction. It should be convenient and interesting and have attitude. Murdoch would spend $400 million launching the channel and didn't expect it to be profitable until 2001. It aired on the 7th of October 1996 and featured Bill O'Reilly's The O'Reilly Factor at 5pm and Sean Hannity's Hannity and Combs at 9pm. From day one, the focus was on how the network felt the makeup and sets, hiring people from the entertainment world rather than news. Executive Chet Collier said, quote, viewers don't want to be informed, they want to feel informed. And at news conferences, Ailes made an extraordinary claim that Fox would be fair and balanced. That was his words, fair and balanced, because the liberal networks used, quote, hot words or code words to present the news with a liberal slant. Instead, Fox News's approach would be neutral. Its slogan, 
was we report, you decide. The premiere of the channel had none of the explosive hysterics we've come to expect from Fox, but O'Reilly would quickly begin to hone the ingredients that would bring viewers back again and again. David Brock notes how, from the start, the O'Reilly factor was revolutionary. He writes, opinion programming was still dominated by the crossfire format, the left and the right debating each other. Larry King, who hosted a non-ideological political and celebrity schmooze fest, owned primetime cable news. It was against CNN and Clinton that Fox would begin to find its footing. Ailes called CNN the Clinton News Network, and through Clinton's years in office, Fox covered Whitewater, a property development scandal that the Clintons were embroiled in, and the Monica Lewinsky scandal through the framing that the establishment elites, including CNN, ABC, and MSNBC, were complacent liberals covering for a corrupt and sleazy president. What was new was that Fox managed to weave this into a recurring narrative, an ongoing storyline that viewers could return to night after night. During the Lewinsky story, CNN and MSNBC grew by 40 and 53% respectively. Fox grew by 400%. The O'Reilly Factor quickly became Fox News's first success. In a media landscape in which news usually just came and went, O'Reilly returned to single narratives that functioned much like a soap, an ongoing drama, a storyline that viewers had an emotional stake in. Rather than present the facts, O'Reilly editorialised, voiced his opinion, rallied against the elites. The first storyline was simple. Bill Clinton was a liar. From his tabloid empire, Murdoch knew, more than anyone, that sex and scandal sells more than anything. Fox made sure that the Lewinsky story was entertaining. It featured polls like, which of the following do you think better describes Monica Lewinsky? An average girl who was taken advantage of? Or a young tramp who went looking for adventure and thrills? What is President Clinton more thankful for this Thanksgiving? Still having a wife or still having a job? Passionate argument was valued in presenters above all else. The vote recount in the Bush-Gore election in 2000 also had the ingredients for a partisan nightly drama that viewers could return to. Fox overtook MSNBC in 2000, and by the spring of 2001, O'Reilly was beating Larry King in the ratings for the first time. In his influential book, Thinking, Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman argues that we have two ways of thinking, fast and slow, system one and system two. System one is emotional, quick. It relies on instinct. It grabs attention. It fights or flights. It acts on autopilot and it speeds us up. It cements habits in place to work automatically. The other, system two, is slower, more thoughtful, more deliberative. 
It thinks through problems. It's more cautious and rational and reflective. Both are necessary for human survival. Fox News is System 1 News. 20 minutes after the towers were hit on 9-11, Fox unveiled an innovation, the crawl. It updated minute by minute, providing short, catchy sound bites. Day of terror in the United States. Two planes crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. WTC towers collapsed. Manhattan is sealed off. All train and bus services halted. Its graphics and text were bold and red. Terrorism hits America, they announced. The emotional coverage combined war and tragedy with patriotism. Presenter John Scott said, Folks, it just bears repeating. This is a tremendous tragedy, yes, but we are still the most powerful nation on earth. It bears repeating, America is still standing. We are united, we are strong, and we will find out who did this. Next, the Fox logo was changed to include an American flag, and presenters began wearing American flag pins. The flag in the logo was so new that many at the network wondered if it was too crass, if they had already gone too far. But MSNBC soon followed, rebranding itself as America's news channel and using catchy American flag coloured graphics. One producer later said, Roger likes things to be produced simply and overtly. For example, he likes words in graphics to be big. He said of the logo in the corner that he made his bigger than CNN's at the launch. Then, when CNN made its bigger, Roger made his bigger still. He kept doing that until CNN gave up. In an age of screens, terrorism and media were beginning to be about something similar grabbing visual attention. In the aftermath of 9-11, Fox quickly led the clarion call for war. O'Reilly said that, we're going to take out this Osama bin Laden. Now, whether we go in with air power or whether we go in with the Delta Force, he's a dead man walking. He should have been through long before this. He's been wanted for eight years. Now they're going to go in and they're going to get him. If the Taliban government of Afghanistan does not cooperate, then we will damage that government with air power, probably. Alright, we will blast them. Three days after 9-11, O'Reilly interviewed Laurie Milroy, the author of Study of Revenge, Saddam Hussein's unfinished war against America. He said, You sound like you're a person who says, Hey, Saddam Hussein should be on the destruction death card along with Osama bin Laden. He should be target number two, maybe. I'd even say target number one, she replied. Fox went on to hire a composer to write liberation Iraq music. They wanted it to be emotional, intense, aggressive. One producer said, more tom-tom drums because they had more urgency. I wanted it to sound like... I don't want to say war drums, but adverts for coverage included eagles and fighter jets and ostentatious war on terror logos. One ad read, Fox News Channel, the country at war. Stay with us for breaking news and live updates, fair and balanced. Exclusively from the team you trust, Fox News Channel, on the ground, in the air, reports from the front, inside the conflict, war coverage, second to none, Fox News Channel. The political fallout, with eyes around the world, a commitment here at home. 
The first place to turn for the latest in news, Fox News Channel, real journalism, fair and balanced. When troops entered Baghdad and reached Ferdos Square, Fox knew it would be a ratings hit. One producer recalled, What better picture than having our f***ing flag in Ferdos Square? It was the capper on 9-11. The towers went down, but the flag went up on that statue. It was like, f*** you, Saddam. A reporter said on air, There we go. Saddam Hussein is now under the star-spangled banner. That's all you're going to see from now on. Anyone that criticised the war was an American. Alex Jones from Harvard University, not that Alex Jones, later reflected that in a conservative time, a time of war, Fox viewers like their news from a strong American perspective, with flags rippling in graphics and a pugnacity towards the nation's critics. The people John Gibson, host of Fox's nightly big story, referred to last week as the peanut gallery. 9-11 did for Fox News what the Lewinsky scandal began. Ratings surged, and in 2002, Fox passed CNN for the first time. After the Iraq war ended and Saddam's WMDs failed to materialise, public opinion began turning on the decision to go to war by the Bush administration and Fox News's ratings suffered as it struggled to find a new storyline. Bush was being criticised over his mishandled response to Hurricane Katrina too, and Fox's viewership dropped by 15%. It was becoming clear that Fox News's fortunes were, like a ship buoyed to the tide, knotted to the waxing and waning popularity of the Republican Party. In 2002, Al Gore had already noticed that Fox News was becoming, quote, part and parcel of the Republican Party. Anita Dunn later said that Fox was the research arm of the Republican Party. And so, searching for that next narrative thread, the next sensational plotline was becoming part of party politics. Obama, who announced he would run for president in 2007, was everything Fox needed, and the period began to show how Fox could take a single fringe minority opinion or possibility and inflate it into a national topic that directed political debate. One leaked email sent by producer Bill Salmon encouraged anchors to emphasise points lifted from Obama's autobiography about socialist conferences he had attended, Marxist professors he knew, and references to difficulties he had with the white girlfriend. Salmon said that Obama was, quote, drawn to Marxists and had racial obsessions and problems with white women. I have to admit that I went on TV on Fox News and publicly engaged in what I, I guess was some rather mischievous speculation about whether Barack Obama really advocated socialism, a premise that privately I found rather far-fetched. On air, Glenn Beck said that This president, I think, has exposed himself as a guy over and over and over again who has a deep-seated hatred for white people or the white culture. I don't know what it is. You can't say he doesn't like white people. David Axelrod's white. Rahm Emanuel's his chief of staff are white. There's, I think 70% of the people that we see every day are white. Robert Gibbs is white. I'm not, I'm not saying that he doesn't like white people. I'm saying he has a problem. He has a... This guy is, I believe, a racist. 
Beck had jumped from CNN to Fox and quickly found success with his distinctive style that featured a chalkboard on which he outlined his conspiratorial and sensational interpretation of the political landscape. Sherman writes that he seemed to many to be Fox News's id made visible. At different times, graphics along the ticker read, the real Barack Obama, aligned with Marxists, socialists, Obama's radical past, close friends with Marxists, Obama's chosen friends, Marxist professors and structural feminists, and Obama's racial divide, emotional black-white races never be pure. One story that Fox pushed claimed that Obama had spent four years at a Saudi Arabia-funded Muslim madrasa, a school in Indonesia. Lifted from InsightMag.com, unnamed sources had claimed that the madrasa Mr. Obama attended may have taught, quote, a Wahhabi doctrine that denies the rights of non-Muslims. Across the network, Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage and Cal Thomas spread the story, with Thomas saying on air that there were, quote, a lot of questions about whether Obama spent two years in a Muslim school in Indonesia. The truth was that Obama had attended a secular school when he'd lived in Indonesia for four years when he was five. Next came the claim that Obama wasn't even American. Jerome Corsi claimed on Fox & Friends that Obama had a false fake birth certificate posted on their website. He said, quote, The original birth certificate of Obama has never been released, and the campaign refuses to release it, continuing that there has been good analysis of it on the internet, and it's been shown to have watermarks from Photoshop. It's a fake document that's on the website right now. Hannity didn't go quite as far, but said, Do I think he was born in America? Yes. Do I think this is odd that they won't produce the birth certificate? It's beginning to get odd to me. The birther movement was win-win for Fox. Either Obama ignored it or refused to produce his birth certificate and they could keep making the claim, or he did, and in doing so, he would acknowledge that it was a possibility or that it was a topic that mattered. Then, as soon as Obama was elected, in true Red Scare style, Glenn Beck quickly compared his policies to policies of the Soviet Union and their five-year plans and with those of fascist dictators. When the Tea Party, headed by Sarah Palin, gained some popularity in an inevitable backlash against Obama and his politics, Fox News began acting as cheerleader. Sherman writes that Palin had somehow managed to graft the old Western myth of the self-reliant frontiersman onto a beauty pageant face and a counter-punching, don't-tread-on-me verbal style, a new kind of character, and a remarkably compelling one. Palin was inevitably going to be attractive to Fox producers. Christopher Hitchens wrote that at least Richard Nixon had the ill fortune to look like what he was, a haunted scoundrel and repressed psychopath, whereas the usefulness of Sarah Palin to the right-wing party managers is that she combines a certain knowingness with a feigned innocence and a still palpable blush of sex. As a small number of Tea Party events and rallies in support of small government and low taxes and critical of Obama's policies sprang up around the country, Fox covered them less like news and more like adverts. 
In February of 2009, Greta Van Susteren announced that Tea Party protests are erupting across the country. Angry taxpayers, or at least some of them, are taking to the streets in the spirit of the Boston Tea Party. Fox began to broadcast live from events, but they also quickly began participating, with Fox News stars like Beck and Hannity giving talks. The Sacramento Tea Party's Facebook page announced, We've just received notice that Fox News will be broadcasting the Your World with Neil Cavuto show live from the Sacramento Tea Party. When a round of parties were announced for April 15th, Fox News aired at least 107 commercials for them. One of them read, quote, April 15th, all across the country, Americans are making their voices heard. In California, Texas, Georgia, Washington, DC, citizens are standing up, saying no to more taxes and demanding real economic solutions. April 15th, as Tea Party sweep the nation on tax day, we're there with total, fair and balanced network coverage, live. Megan Kelly announced that you can join the Tea Party action from your home if you go to thefoxnation.com, a virtual tax day tea party. The language, events will sweep the nation, people everywhere, is intended to give the impression that everyone is doing it, it's national news, and Fox is simply covering it, fair and balanced, rather than being a voice piece for and embedded in the movement. By 2012, Fox was indisputably intertwined with the wider Republican Party. They had five Republicans actually on the payroll, Mike Huckabee, Rick Santorum, Newt Gingrich, Sarah Palin and John Bolton. The 2012 Republican primary was christened the Fox News primary. Candidates would only appear on Fox rather than other networks for the first time, with over 600 appearances the year before. Fox, of course, capitalised on the drama, announcing things like, Governor Huckabee will announce tomorrow night on his programme whether or not he intends to explore a presidential bid. Former Bush speechwriter David Frum said on ABC that Republicans originally thought that Fox worked for us, and now we're discovering we work for Fox, and that the balance here has been completely reversed. In 2010, at least 30 Fox News employees would support, in varying ways, over 300 Republicans. Appearing on Fox would not only boost media exposure, but also raise cash. Sarah Palin appeared on Fox for a total of 14 hours in 2010. Brock writes, No wonder Republicans loved appearing on Fox News at 9pm. Less than 15 minutes of time could bring in $40,000, far more efficient than almost any other form of grassroots fundraising. When Glenn Beck, shielded for the many-tentacled pro-business anti-democrat Chamber of Commerce lobby on air in 2010, he said, I would like to make this the biggest fundraising day in the Chamber's history. He pledged $10,000 of his own money and then asked, So put your money where your mouth is. If you have a dollar, please go to glenbeck.com or to the US Chamber of Commerce and donate today. It turned out to be the biggest donation day the Chamber had ever had. 
So by the time Trump was gearing up for his presidential run in 2015, Fox was part of a pro-business, anti-tax, anti-immigration, anti-Obama, sensationalist, emotional rallying network that acted as the voice piece for the Republican movement. But how is it that Fox captivated audiences so quickly? It seems to be a ringing indictment of their method that Fox's 1.5 million primetime viewers in 2022 leaves MSNBC and CNN trailing with 668,000 and 583,000 respectively. So let's see what we can pull together about how Fox does it before thinking about how we and competing media might respond. Postmodern thinker Jacques Derrida was famous for criticising the history of Western philosophers for being what he called logocentric. Logos is from the Greek word for reason, and he means that philosophers have long presumed that they're building a kind of objective pile of knowledge that gets to some essential truth, an indisputable ideal that one could understand neutrally. Thomas Nagel had called it the presumption of the view from nowhere. Derrida argues that this view is impossible. We are embedded in the world with a subjective language, each with our different human perspectives. I think more than anything, Fox is successful because it understands this. But for good or bad, news is about more than facts. It's about selection, interpretation, presentation, points of view, and while it often steps into the unethical, into exaggeration and hyperbole, into mistruth and hysterics, it's successful because it's not exactly wrong, it just leans into its perspective. In fact, as De Leon points out, local television stations in America were doing this long before Fox. He writes, while the networks cultivated a broadcast style that was purposefully Olympian, news from nowhere, in Edward J. Epstein's phrase, local stations did exactly the opposite, producing a journalism that was rooted in particular communities, featuring anchors and reporters who acted like human beings, not emotionless professionals. So yes, the news isn't just this rationalistic presentation of facts and information, we cannot escape having a perspective on the world, and people should of course be able to express this perspective. So before we get to how Fox's anti-rationalistic postmodern style is used and misused, let's take a quick look at how we can understand Fox's formula and toolkit. I think we can loosely categorise Fox's formula into three parts. Presentation, narrative, and emotion. 
We've already seen how Ailes revolutionised the use of graphics and sound bites and sets, the presentation of style, arresting, sensational, shocking images, and good-looking presenters are, of course, always going to play on our evolutionary wiring to attract our attention. But the use of charts, graphs, and things like maps, visual cues, are now an uncontroversial part of the media landscape, of course. ABC had led the way as far back as 1977 by making Rune Artledge the head of ABC Sports, the head of ABC News. He'd used graphics and charts to illustrate sports trends and had revolutionised televised sport by emphasising the stats, the drama, and made the stories of the sportsmen and women the central focus of coverage. One study on the use of graphics in news concluded that data suggest graphics help younger and older viewers store and retrieve information presented in television news stories. So presentation to attract attention is, of course, inevitable, but Fox uses this to maximum effect. One graphic, for example, included Obama and Hillary Clinton with Castro surrounded by a love heart and read Castro's Dream Team, once Clinton and Obama in 08. They also present information in a misleading way, cropping the bottom of charts like this one to make Obamacare enrolment look lower than it actually was. Soundbites, the set, camera placement, catchphrases, charts, image selection and graphs all supplement the traditional rationalistic presentation of the news in words. And like anything, they can all be used and misused. Tobin Smith, who worked at Fox and went on to write a book about his time there called Foxocracy, writes that Fox News has season-long narratives that require the good guy hero protagonists, the babyfaces, to always win, and the bad guy antagonists, the heels, to lose. We've seen how, instead of presenting news, Fox constructs narratives that like television drama seasons, keep viewers coming back for more and more. There always have been national and international stories, of course, but Fox also embeds itself into them, into the story, turning it into a good versus evil drama that it's fighting for itself. Narratives that follow the Lewinsky scandal, Obama's birth certificate, supposed Marxism, Trump's swamp, and so on, all follow a similar formula that Ailes learned from Nixon. First, establishment liberals control the country, the media, even the world. Second, they're all hypocrites, sanctimonious, greedy, wrong, dangerous, and so on. Three, they're actually in the minority, though, for you are the silent majority, the honest average good guy, but you're also the little guy, the powerless guy. Five, we at Fox stand up for you. The narratives usually revolve around the traditional American way of life being under attack. That way of life, the ideal Fox News identity, is often Protestant, or at least Christian, 
church-going, married with kids, hard-working, patriotic, flag-bearing, rural, anti-globalist, working class, avoids drugs, straight, white, constitution-loving, and doesn't like things like immigration, socialism, big government, and so on. Fox News defends this against the misguided elites, and Ailes knew that more than anything, people wanted to watch their heroes win. He sent a memo each day with the emotional target for the day in it. Hosts were to spread and amplify that message. One Fox News employee said that they were in search of these points of friction, real or imagined, and most of them were imagined or fabricated. You always have to seem to be under siege. You always have to seem like your values are under attack. And importantly, it's not the most pressing issue or the most notable global event that's necessarily woven into the narrative. It's the story that, however small, aligns with the ideology. They often take a tiny story, usually from a right-wing blog or an obscure source, and twist it and turn it into an existential threat and a story of national or international importance. If the story is then picked apart by other networks or a newspaper, they simply quietly stop covering it and move on. Stories might have a grain of truth, or be possible, but the narrative is presented with omissions and exaggerations designed to misconceive the audience into thinking that the threat is more of a threat than it is. Migrant caravans heading towards the border wall, trans activists grooming children, Covid regulations are a conspiracy to give the elite more power. That's the answer, is more lockdowns, more lockdowns, more fear, um, and therefore he doesn't have to do his job of fixing the supply chain because we'll just keep this whole thing going. It's yeah. always a new variant. And you can always, you'll count on a variant about every October, every yeah. two years. <laughs> the idea that you can take a minor, tiny story or a minor, tiny possibility and turn it into a direct attack on the demographic you're talking to is not new. Moral panics in the press have been around forever. The phenomenon, though, began to be studied more seriously in the 60s, when researchers here in the UK noted how a very small fringe story about teenage gang crime had been spun into a national panic. The tabloids found that moral panics, guess what, sold more newspapers. And who led the tabloid press in the UK? Rupert Murdoch. Emotion. Ailes once said at a campaign manager's forum back in 1988, let's face it, there are three things that the media are interested in, pictures, mistakes, and attacks. That's the one sure way of getting coverage. You try to avoid as many mistakes as you can, you try to give them as many pictures as you can, and if you need the coverage, you attack, and you will get coverage. It's my orchestra pit theory of politics. If you have two guys on stage and one guy says, I have a solution to the Middle East problem, and the other guy falls in the orchestra pit, who do you think is going to be on the evening news? As humans, we rely on emotion, facial expressions, gestures, tonality, the drama in spontaneity, 
and surprise and argument. These are at the centre of human life. When it supplemented newspapers as the primary way we get our news, it was no surprise then that this new direct visual medium would change how the news was delivered. Smith says one executive told him, Here's what I give my producers when I hire them so they can write compelling teasers and emotionally powerful openings. I call this process emotional target practice, to aim your tease and sermon to where the emotional and cultural orthodoxies were and compare and contrast to how different and scary liberals and liberal orthodoxy are today. Executives focused on orchestrated moments. They told presenters to, quote, make it a moment, keep drawing out and focusing on the drama. Outrage, argue, shock, attack, find the wedge issue. The moment is made more powerful still with something like maximum sarcasm. Dan Rather at CBS told Esquire that moments are when a viewer feels it, smells it, and knows it. Smith recalls that at Fox, moments were best when the viewer's culture was under threat, apparently disrespected. You calling our viewers stupid? The Bible disparaged, say. He described it as existential white tribal fear and visceral resentment. Bringing presentation, narrative, and emotion together Smith said that the Fox formula works something like this. First, the Fox News alert flashes up, signalling a threat. Fight or flight excitement kicks in, aided by visual resonant images, graphics and sounds. Then, the host scares the viewer into thinking they're under attack. The viewer then becomes tribal, defensive, the tension is heightened. Then, the enemy, in an interview or just a clip, fights, so-called, the host, then the host steps in as the hero. The enemy is stupid, selfish, out of touch. Everything is crafted in a way to ensure the safety and satisfaction of a victory at the end. Before seeing what we can learn from all of this, it's worth pointing out that while Fox News makes the product, people still have to choose to watch. And if people are attracted to Fox, the question becomes, is Fox part of a wider phenomenon? Trump may have been the Fox News president, but he was a reality TV star and a billionaire first, after all. It wasn't just Fox that put him in the Oval Office. And to consistently claim that the elites have consciously rigged the system against you, that the country is under threat consistently, there has to be some kind of receptive audience. Smith points to loneliness and elderly estrangement as a factor, for example. Communities, families and individuals left behind by a fast-moving modernity. Journalist Peggy Noonan similarly writes, we have the fierce teamism of the lonely, who find fellowship in their online fighting group and will say anything for its approval. There are the angry, who find relief in politics because they can funnel their rage there, into that external thing, instead of examining closer and more uncomfortable causes. There are the people who cannot consider God and religion and have to put that energy somewhere. 
America isn't making fewer of the lonely, angry, and unaffiliated. It's making more every day. But while there may be some truth to this, one poll has shown that MSNBC viewers are also older and that Fox News demographics are spread across ages as well. And while 74% of Fox News viewers are white, 70% of MSNBCs are too. So the often cited interpretation that Fox News viewers are old, white and isolated might not be true. The real difference in viewer demographics is in education and type of employment. Fox News viewers are more likely to have not graduated from university and work in white or blue collar jobs than viewers of other networks. The wider phenomenon is more likely to be split down the lines of what John Sperling and Suzanne Wiggins call Retro and Metro America. Retro America, the one culturally, traditionally and economically rooted in the past, and Metro America, the one culturally heterogeneous, culturally modern and economically focused on the future. Of course, when working class wages haven't improved much, if at all, in 50 plus years, when the rich elite get richer while the poor stay poorer, it's easy to sell viewers a narrative that blames the other, the immigrant, or a shadowy conspiracy of establishment figures out to make your life worse and their lives better. So I think there are two sides to Fox, a postmodern Fox, and a hysteric fox. The first, I think, is an inevitable development in response to the possibilities of a new technology, television as a media. The second is a reactionary, conspiratorial, truth-twisting ideology that progressives could better counter if they were more willing to use Fox's postmodern arsenal against them. When the selling of the president came out in the wake of Ailes's Nixon ads, there was a debate about whether television was manipulation, an act, artificial. But the style of television that went on to include sound bites, graphics, manufactured spontaneity and drama, the appeal to our system one emotional quick mind, story selection, framing, repetition, editorializing and opinion is a part of the possibilities of this postmodern medium. Fox simply favors these things over elitist, rationalistic, objective, so-called unbiased and neutral journalism that can be dry. It fits into reality TV, morning talk shows, cop shows, shocking videos, viral content, live events, humor, and personality. And all of these things can be used or misused for good and for bad. I don't think there's any going back to government interference like the Fairness Doctrine. In this internet era in which a million voices can flourish, it makes no sense to rely on regulation of the past. People should be allowed to present their point of view. And with the internet, that's inevitable. As De Leon wrote back in 2015, the post-television age is imminent, and its arrival will mean the end of television news as we have known it for the past 50 years. On the internet, a new journalism has already begun to emerge, 
and over the next decade, it will likely become our principal source of news. So much better to isolate Fox's hysterical excesses and counter them in some way. And that will be a challenge for anyone whose commitment to truth and fairness and justice and progress trumps their appetites for likes and ratings. On the day the Mueller report on Russian interference in the 2016 election was published, Fox's Facebook page views were double CNNs, and the New York Times and Washington Posts were a sixth of that number. So what are those hysterical excesses? I think you can see them perfectly represented in this graph. This is the point where postmodern framing meets its limit. There is something undeniably modern and rationalistic about a graph. You are representing data, numerically, neutrally. When it comes to data, it's unethical, misleading, just wrong and manipulative to twist the frame. And there's a similar critique in how Fox selects stories to cover. Any story has a range of evidence, different possibilities and different interpretations. Different people appraise its importance in different ways and emphasise different parts. The story can be described generously or sceptically described in a way that covers different points of views, or can be strawmanned. Any event, in short, can be interpreted in myriad ways. But Fox will always select the interpretation that aligns with their ideology, and is the most scary interpretation, no matter how small the chances of that interpretation being correct are, no matter how outlandish that interpretation is. When Obamacare was the story, the emphasis was on the hysterical fear of death panels that could choose who would and wouldn't get care. White farm owners in South Africa being attacked or at threat of being evicted becomes about white genocide. Trans rights becomes about grooming. Covid becomes about a conspiracy to control the population. Of course, I'm not saying that we don't all make our cases that we all have our biases, that if you're going to make an argument, you have to have an interpretation that will be moulded by your point of view of the world. And I think that all of this is a good thing. But it's a moral balancing act. It requires honesty and integrity that at least considers other points of view and doesn't emphasise interpretations of the world based on what viewers will fear the most, personified and amplified into Hollywood-style epics of good versus evil. It's divisive, devious and dangerous. It paints a picture of the world based on stereotype. It's hammer horror news, biblical gossip, sensationalist shock jocking. It takes a caricature of a worldview that fears the other, the conspiracy, the puppet master, the villain, and filters everything through it, turning the viewer into a soldier that views their neighbours as the enemy. Fox presents the story by weaponising the most emotional language, supported by melodramatic, attention-grabbing graphics, relying on the most destructive tendencies of our evolutionary inheritance. 
Our defence mechanisms, anxieties, survival wiring, fight or flight, our tendency to focus on threat, danger, the negative, to weave a narrative that ultimately could be the most dangerous force that democracy faces. Thank you as always for watching, and a huge thanks of course, as always, to my Patreons, without which this just wouldn't be possible. So if you want to see scripts, if you want to chat in the Discord server, if you want your name in the credits, but most of all, if you just want to help support make this content, then click the link in the description below. If not, you can like, you can share, you can leave a comment, all those things that help the algorithm. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.